Hello and welcome to today's Farmer Forum podcast. Today I'm joined by a special guest who you may know if you've listened to our podcast before. It is our Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Jonah Comstock. Jonah, hello. Hi, it's fun to be in this seat. So you've had a very, very busy week. You've been to both ASCO and uh, Bio International in Boston. So can you, starting with, with ASCO, can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen at the event? Yes. So I did, uh, Bio and ASCO overlapped this year, which apparently happens periodically, despite them being sort of two of the biggest conferences in pharma. So I did the first three days at ASCO and then uh, the first, I guess, three days of bio. Um, I ended up taking today off uh, just because six back-to-back conference days was was kind of enough. Not necessarily uh, so, recommended. So ASCO is a conference where sort of it, there are kind of themes and trends and, and it is a, a meeting of of industry, you know, folks so so the sorts of things that go on at meetings of industry folks go on there's a big exhibit hall there's you know keynote presentations um but the main event at asco is really the abstract presentations um a certain number of studies are chosen to be plenary studies it's a sort of a big deal to get chosen it's a little bit of a competition amongst sort of the the big pharmas and, and some smaller pharmas too and that ideally i think like the the combination of the various kind of plenaries gives you an idea of what's going on in the space. So overall, like it, it it continues to be a really exciting time to be in oncology. People are people are really fired up. There's the the pace of research that's happening is really impressive. Um and it's kind of unlike anything that's happened in, in many, many years because you've got immunotherapies and checkpoint inhibitors. Um you've got small molecule advancements, protein inhibitors, and, and then starting to have some kind of cell and gene therapy. Although at ASCO, um, in the world of solid tumors, which is a lot of the focus at ASCO, that uh, cell and gene hasn't really broken through yet, but it's starting to be used in some hematology uh, and and non-solid tumors, so leukemia, uh, things like that. And the sense seems to be that it's a when, not an if, on solid tumors. There's a lot of challenges, but you know, if we think about ASCO in the next three to four years, we'll start to maybe see that break breakthrough. And, and how about the trends that you've seen at ASCO coming through that we might be looking at for the next few years? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to say because I'm sort of, it was my first ASCO. Uh, so I think I have less of a view on the trends than other uh, biotech reporters who have been going uh, many years. But the, the sense I get is that one thing that's happening is you know, we think of cancer treatment right now as, as highly personalized, and that's sort of the the big breakthrough of, of recent years in, in cancer is we figured out exactly what, you know, parts of molecules need to be targeted, and, and, and um, within cancers, you know, we have segmented them into, into different groups that respond to different treatments. Um, but what's interesting is that even though within an indication, cancer care is, is very personalized, um, different cancers sometimes have the same receptors uh, at play. And so you can have, uh, you know, the, the new kind of blockbuster drug is actually a, a drug that um, tackles specific subsets of many different cancers. And so an example of that is uh, the DESTINY trial is, is the example I was going to use, DESTINY PANTUMOR2. So this is in HER2, which is uh, AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo's uh, antibody drug conjugate. 
Um, and their their trial that they presented was basically a, a tumor agnostic indication in any HER2 uh, positive tumor. And, and they're not the first to sort of explore something like that. But, but if this uh, trial were to translate to a regulatory approval, obviously um, it'd be pretty big for them. And, and it's not every tumor, but it's a, it's a collection of tumors that sort of individually wouldn't be a huge market share, but together represent a lot. So, so there's kind of two things. There's, there's increased personalization, but also sort of, um, you know, when you've the current state, and we're going to get back to this when we talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, is the current state of, of medicine is not like you come out with one drug and then you start working on the next drug. It's like you come out with one drug and then you try to find all the possible indications where that drug could be useful. And a lot of the um, presentations were about like, you know, that that idea of like additional indications. Um, a couple other particular ones I want to talk about. Um, there was so much talk about this Adora trial, which is also AstraZeneca in non-small cell lung cancer. And the that's actually a drug that's already approved to Griso in, in a indication that's already approved, but it was approved based on disease-free survival. And apparently that was not sort of like a sufficiently compelling outcome measure for a lot of oncologists uh, because disease-free survival contrary to kind of what it might sound like from the words, doesn't actually always correlate with overall survival. So, so you know, you can, you can be uh, disease-free at the end of the trial, and then it can come back again. Um, so overall survival is the gold standard. And they were able to demonstrate a 51% increase in overall survival across all groups. So any way you slice the cohort, male, female, older, younger, smoker, non-smoker, which is important in lung cancer. And, um, and 51% is, is like, uh, apparently pretty unheard of. So people were very excited about that trial. Um, the other one that people were very excited about was Natalie, which is uh, Kis- Novartis' Kiskali in HR2 negative breast cancer. Um, that was just kind of overall uh, really good numbers. Um, increase in invasive disease-free survival, 90.4% versus 87% in the control group. Um, that's an example of another trend, which is in addition to sort of moving to different indications, um, a lot of companies that have a drug approved for metastatic or advanced stage cancers are trying to get it approved to the adjuvant, um, space. So for early stage and for sort of maybe preventative is the wrong word, but you, you have surgery, you have, uh, chemotherapy and, and the, you know, the big challenge is making sure the cancer doesn't come back. And so a lot of these drugs, in this case, a CDK, CDK 4-6 inhibitor can be used um, in, in this adjuvant setting to, to treat the, the cancer and keep it from coming back. And, and so this Natalie trial proved that you know, there's, uh, for this drug, Kiskali, there's a potential application there. And just like expanding to multiple indications kind of in, uh, expands your, your market for the drug, uh, being able to move from metastatic to adjuvant uh, or even... Um, neoadjuvant <laughs> um, is, is also like potentially market expanding. So there's a lot of trials about that. And there's one more trend I want to talk about, um, it, which this one I haven't heard as much discussion about in the press, but I think it's very interesting. Um, there was one trial called Prospect, uh, and it was in, uh, I think, col- colorectal cancer. Um, and uh, the, what's interesting about this trial is they, they, there was no new drug involved. It was uh, an existing 
um, kind of cocktail of, of drugs, but what they what they were trying to prove was that these drugs could work without uh, uh, radiation or, or surgery. So so it was a different treatment regimen that instead of sort of doing surgery um, as as the the first line um, started with these drugs, and and what they found is that they could have comparable overall survival rates without subjecting nearly as many uh, patients to these really kind of toxic and, and uh, ag- aggressive forms of treatment that are the standard of care across so much of, of cancer care, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, um, and, and surgery. And, and I, I want to get it right in terms of exactly which, uh, <laughs> which of those things. This, so this one was, was um, what, what they were avoiding in particular in this trial was pelvic irradiation. Um, and in, in the rectal cancer area, pelvic radiation is especially um, detrimental because it can lead to infertility in both men and women. So if, if you have this cancer when you're young, uh, that's a, a pretty big impact on your, your whole life. Um, and it, in addition to all the other toxic effects of radiation. So in this trial, um, they were able to show comparable outcomes, and but the number of patients who actually ended up needing the, the radiation was like, quite small um, compared to standard of care when all of the patients would have gotten it. So I think, you know, to extend that to a trend, this idea that, like, uh, there have been so many advances, um, both in sort of these anti-cancer drugs and also in uh, imagery and in imaging and in surgery, that, like, we can start to look at the stuff we do now that works and not just think about does it work, but, like, do we need it? Um, is it worth the the negative effects for for patients and and so we start to see more of these uh, radiation reduction trials and I think that's kind of it's interesting and sort of important in, when we start to think about like you know keeping the patient at the center and the patient perspective at the forefront like can we start to reduce or eliminate these really unpleasant situations for patients and um, that's kind of been the trend in the history of cancer care if you look back at some of the things we used to do to children with cancer because we didn't know of anything else they were pretty brutal and yeah now less so i think that's the history of medicine it's just oh it, it the things we used to do that you would never do today it's that constant evolution of treatment to make things more palatable for patients and also to just drive advancements. So we've heard a little bit about what's coming up and what's in the pipeline. Were there any other big headline news stories or anything that you saw around the conference that really caught your eye? Um, Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to keep my head above the water, really. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of talk about ovarian cancer. Um, Ovarian cancer is a, a cancer that for, for various reasons, has been sort of resistant to some of the novel treatments. So apparently it's the only uh, indication that hasn't had a checkpoint inhibitor approved um, for use, and, and that may be changing. There was promising data uh, at ASCO around that in a trial called uh, uh, DUO-O, um, and there were a couple of other trials about ovarian cancer in particular, um, uh, one called Mirasol, uh, that could potentially practice changing because it uh, greatly reduced um, side effects and an overall survival benefit in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. Um, and this is an antibody drug conjugate. Um, there was also a lot of news in glioma, which is a, a similar, like, it's a low-grade uh, brain cancer um, 
that is uh, that is very treatment resistant. And um, there, there was a trial Indico that's getting a lot of buzz uh, where, where they were able to have an effect. Uh, they doubled progression free survival in uh, low grade glioma. And that is a that's a disease area that really hasn't had any advancement essentially in um, in decades. So like very big deal for those patients. Well, it sounds like there's some great positive um, news coming out in terms of survival rates and, and breakthroughs in terms of, of resistant tumors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- we're at this point where, like, it feels like these, like, doors have been opened in oncology with sort of some new ideas for treatment modalities, and, and everyone's just sort of pursuing them across different indications with different mechanisms of action, like... I don't want to undersell the the novelty of any of this, but it's all kind of in a, you know, in certain lanes as, as it goes with science, you know, you make the big breakthrough and then there's a lot of breakthroughs that can kind of follow off of that. And we're still in this sort of period of, of optimism and of a ton of, of kind of possibility. Well, that's the exciting place to be. Is it not in oncology is the, the possibility. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm I'm sure you know I I should I should plug that we're gonna have um video interviews that I did at ASCO going up, uh for the next few weeks and and you'll be able to get sort of more in depth on some of these trials I've mentioned and some of the ones I haven't, um it's sort of from the horse's mouth uh, you know I I let the folks talk about it the scientists talk about it and they'll be able to be much more sort of expansive and accurate than I am right now trying to remember all these details so I encourage you to check those up as they go up um. Different from some of the video coverage we've done of other shows like JPM, this is all going to be quite like R&D and science focused. So a lot of good detail in those interviews. Fantastic. So if we move slightly away from from ASCO to start talking about the more recent event that you were at, which is BIO, um, what were people talking about at the event this year? So the big obvious answer to that, and this honestly extended to ASCO as well, which is a little shocking given that ASCO is more of a science conference, is the Inflation Reduction Act. That is all pharma can talk about. Um, It is, so, okay, very briefly summarize. Um, It's a big uh, legislative act in in the U.S. signed by President Biden a few months ago. Um, there's a bunch of provisions, some of which everyone kind of can get behind, uh, towards the goal of lowering, uh, drug prices. Um, the, we really, when we talk about the controversy in Inflation Reduction Act, much of the time we're talking about one particular provision, which is the Medicare negotiation provision, which in theory says that Medicare can negotiate drug prices, uh, on a, a subset of drugs, starting with nine with a few more added. Um, the problem is this word negotiation is quite contentious because if, uh, they choose not to negotiate, they get hit by a like obscene excise tax, which basically means they have no choice but to negotiate. Of course, the other choice they have is to not sell drugs to the government, but Medicare and Medicaid, uh, represent such a huge part of the prescription drug, uh, market that that's not really a real choice. Um, so it's basically like, lose all your money, lose all your money, or pay whatever price we set. And under those conditions, the pharma companies believe that there's no real reason for the government to engage in good faith negotiation. Therefore, this will just be government price setting, um, cloaked in the veil of negotiation. And the big thing that happened this week is that Merck sued the government um, over this, 
saying that this law is a violation of the First and Fifth Amendments. Uh, the First Amendment, because by forcing uh, pharma companies to sign something saying that they agreed in a negotiated agreement when it wasn't legitimately a negotiation, that um, that violates their freedom of speech, which is a little bit of a... Uh, that one people aren't buying a lot, but the Fifth Amendment one involves uh, the government's uh, constitutional requirement to compensate uh, people for seized property at fair market value. And um, and they're basically making the case that at, at this point, you know, the government is essentially seizing these drugs from them uh, and not paying a fair market value. So it, it sounds pretty kooky on the surface, but uh, if you read the lawsuit, which I would highly encourage you to do because it's an entertaining read, um, I, I think Merck has some grounds here. I, and I think it's actually not cut and dry how, how it's going to go. But what's interesting is that Merck sued as Merck and not, uh, you know, not with pharma, not in a joint plaintiff suit with other pharma companies. So the door is open for anybody to join them. <laughs> uh, so we could see, you know, pharma versus government legislation like we haven't seen since the opioid crisis, but just very different. It's certainly a big story that's going to be developing over over the coming months because yeah. litigation takes ages. So there is plenty of time for this to change as we, we move forward. We're just at the beginning of it. So the reason this extends into ASCO is that the, the pharma company line, and, and this is what I heard over and over again from pharma companies, is that is and okay. There's another piece besides the negotiation, which is, oh no, sorry. An an aspect of the negotiation is that these prices kick in after nine uh, years for small molecules and thirteen years for biologics. Um, that's when the negotiations kick in. So the the the, the worry is that this is going to have a chilling effect on R and D. Um, because the way that pharma R and D works is that you know you have a bunch of failures and the failures uh get paid for by the successes. So pharma needs to make very big profits when they have a hit and they need to make that profit over a certain amount of time Uh, and it's already the case that once the you know once they hit the um the point where their patent is is, expires then they have to deal with competition from generics or biosimilars and you know that already is a big drop in price but this sort of uh forces that timetable even more aggressively and um and the problem is what we talked about before, where, you know, pharma companies now are creating a drug in a narrow indication and then expanding it out into wider indications. And so their curve of their profit just gets, you know, kind of bigger as the drug stays out for longer. Um, if they suddenly have to, you know, have a cap on what they can make off of a drug, like, suddenly it's not a good strategy to come out in a narrow indication first because that starts your clock and it might be five or ten years before you get the, you know, the wide indication out and at that point your clock's already expired and you can only make whatever the government sets. So so either companies are going to delay uh, releasing their drugs until they've got them cleared for many indications, which would be bad for patients and uh, difficult for pharma companies in terms of, uh, in terms of cash flow. Uh, or they are going to waste time instead of coming out with new indications for the same drug, slightly modifying their drug so that they can restart the clock when they come out, which both wastes a lot of energy and introduces potential like safety issues. So, 
so the big problem is that the way that the bill is engineered, and this is, again, the farmer perspective, which, of course, Cannon is argued with, um, the way that the bill is engineered just isn't, isn't coherent with the way that pharma companies make money in 2023 and the way that they develop drugs and release drugs. So there were many, many panels about this, and they were all quite one-sided preaching to the choir panels, with the one exception being FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, who took the stage in a main stage session yesterday, uh, who obviously was taking the government's side for the most part. <laughs> and what did he have to say? Well, so I went to another conference a few weeks ago, uh, the Frontiers Health Conference, and they also had a panel on the IRA. Not Frontiers, that's our conference. That's coming up. The um, Financial Times uh, Conference. And they also had a panel on the IRA, and they actually had a patient advocate on the panel who uh, actually argued for the act. But basically, the argument is is twofold. One, like, okay, so innovation is going to be impacted, but right now, patients can't afford the drugs that they need to survive. So, which is a higher priority? Getting me the drugs that already exist that I need to live, or getting... Or making sure that there are new drugs coming out later. Like, that's for patients, you know. That's the thing that is most important is can I get hold of what is going to potentially save my life? But of course, that's sort of short-sighted if you're a patient for whom the life-saving drug hasn't been developed yet, which is, you know, some patients. And I mean, I should add, one of the panels I went to was specifically focused on the rare disease space where this is uniquely harmful um, because of the way that, uh, because, yeah, of everything I just said, I guess, applies in, in many ways more stringently. And, and the government tried to head that off by creating something called the orphan drug exception. But perplexingly, the orphan drug exception is limited to orphan drugs that have exactly one indication. So if they're operating in this way, then they also get screwed. And, and apparently the reasoning behind that was to avoid turning the exception into a loophole that any pharma company could use as long as their drug targeted at least one rare disease. Um, so this stuff is complicated, but the overarching complaint is that the industry wasn't consulted enough about this. Patient groups weren't consulted enough. You know, the, the legislation is well-meaning, but is not going to ultimately have the effects the government wants it to have. But I think underpinning this, and I wrote a whole column about this that we can link to in the description, is this tension between affordability and access and funding innovation. And I think as long as we see this as a binary where you have to be on one side or the other, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not going to get solved. Um, Caliph's point was like, yes, we lead in innovation in the United States and pharmaceutical innovation, but we don't lead in health. Like our health outcomes are lagging and they have been getting worse for years. So w why is it that we're you know, producing all this innovation and not seemingly benefiting from it. And and that's one way to look at the access and affordability and cost challenges, because the United States has some of the best care in the world, but people in the United States often don't have access to it. And that is everybody's problem. And I think this was a big, a big stick uh, way of making sure pharma knew that it was their problem. And the only way they're going to get things changed in, in terms of this act is by finding another way to solve that problem. So it's going to be negotiation just in a different area than says in the, the legislation. Unless they win the lawsuit, then maybe it's just back to business as, as usual. I don't know. <laughs> so if we, if we bring it back a little bit to bio, uh, we've heard about the, uh, the IRA Act, but um, sorry, the IRA Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, 
looking at other areas, there's been huge trends towards accelerated approvals. Was were there any indications that this is something that that is still concerning um, pharma companies in the in the industry? So, in addition to Calif, there were there were several other FDA folks, the directors for the Center of Drug Evaluation and Research and the Center for Biologic Evaluation and Research, Cedar and Sieber, were also in like a town hall, um, and the things they talked about were. Uh, well, many things, but some of the, the main ones were accelerator approvals and uh, advisory committees, which are just apparently very. And I also went to a, a, a nighttime session that STAT put on in ASCO, and they also had an FDA, a, a fourth FDA person there. Um, and, and they were also uh, asked about both of these things. So these are kind of the big things we want to know from the FDA. So when it comes to accelerated approvals, um, I, I think that the industry is like kind of excited that the accelerated approval pathways exist um, because the pace of innovation is so, uh, you know, so rapid right now. And we want to get these drugs out to patients um, faster. But the sort of implicit agreement with accelerated approval is that if you have a promising study uh, with a good surrogate outcome measure, you know, so something that is not sort of definitive, but is probably says if, if this measure is good, then this measure is probably also good then you can start marketing the drug. But you have to do a confirmatory trial where you give them that gold standard data later. And basically the industry has not been very good at doing the confirmatory trials. They get the drug out in the market and they sort of dare the FDA to take it off and they just don't do the trial. And the FDA is pretty annoyed about that. And one of the reasons for this is that, uh, you know, imagine you're a patient with a deadly disease and your doctor says, hey, you can either take this drug that's in the market or I can put you in a clinical trial for exactly the same drug and you have a 50% chance of not being on it. Uh, yeah, how are you going to recruit for that trial? Who is going to opt in to, you know, <laughs> the 50% shot at the life-saving drug when they have the 100% shot on the table? So, like, the whole thing has sort of this fatal flaw uh, whether that's the only reason they're not doing these trials or not, who knows? I mean, the, the reason you do a trial is so that you can market your drug and make money off of it if they're already marketing their drug and making money off of it. So so that's the big thing with this accelerated approval is like the FDA wants to, well, the government, including the FDA, wants to create some incentive for uh, companies to actually do these confirmatory trials. And, um, and now they're starting to talk about maybe CMS, uh, which is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Uh, the big government payer, providing that incentive by uh, allowing uh, Medicare to pay less for uh, drugs that have only been through the accelerated pathway than they do if those drugs have been through uh, full approval. So basically create that incentive. Um, so there's, yeah, so th there's this interesting, like, uh, people in the industry want more accelerated approval. FDA is sort of like, well, like, we've given you accelerated approval and you have not fulfilled your side of the contract so what are we supposed to do um and it you know it's a it's a hard situation because you do want to keep focused on the patients but there's a lot of kind of political maneuvering here that doesn't have much to do with them and safety above all has to be in enforced by the fda as well if they if they don't enforce these these secondary trials then is the fda liable if something goes wrong or is the pharma company liable if something goes wrong Right. And I mean, I, I don't have specific examples of this right now, but I'm, I'm sure you would be able to find them quite easily on Farm Forum. But there have now been already situations where 
I think some of these accelerated approval drugs have had some adverse effects or, or something. And, and, and that's sort of driving this conversation too. And it must be difficult in rare disease cases as well, as we spoke about earlier, if there are only so many patients in this cohort that you can draw from. And as you said, if they have access to the drug already, how do you find those patients to take part in the trial? So aside from accelerated approval, it all sounds incredibly fascinating. Um, What were the standout sessions that you saw at Bio? So... um... There was a lot of stuff on the main stage that I think from a news perspective wasn't that interesting, but it was really, I mean, kudos on the organizers, like, it was very interesting. Uh, their guest of honor was Katie Couric, um, and in addition, uh, she was fantastic, in addition to being, like, a, a world-class, world-famous news anchor, uh, she's a breast cancer survivor, um, she lost her husband to colon cancer. And in between those two things, she started a uh, or, or was in a, the team that started a nonprofit called Stand Up to Cancer that um, supports, raises money for cancer research and, and directly supports research, uh, cancer research. Not not too dissimilar, I think, from Cancer Research UK, which you're, you're probably familiar with, but in the United States. I did not know she started Stand Up to Cancer. That's re- that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So she talked a lot about that, what the work they do and sort of how how she got involved in it and some very frank kind of observations about the cancer research space, which she's pretty well informed on for a, a layperson, <laughs> obviously as a journalist and a person who, um, you know, who has been in, involved in this nonprofit. Um, and they even brought up, uh, uh, speaking of kind of having patients on stage, they, uh, there was Andrew Marshall, who is a leukemia survivor and also was on The Voice. Um, he came up and, and talked about his experience with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and then he played a song. So that was pretty cool. So they, they, they were, you know, there's a lot of talk about cancer research, cancer advocacy. Um, and this was at, at bio, uh, which is not the oncology focused, <laughs> theoretically not the un- exclusively oncology focused conference. Um, you know, there were a lot of main stage. Bio is an organization that does lobbying on behalf of, of pharma and biotech. So their, their president spoke, their um, CEO spoke. Uh, and they really spoke a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act, but not in a, you know, highly technical way about the act itself, but more about sort of the underlying problem here, which is that uh, pharma has, and this is what we heard a lot, you know, at, or at JPM when, when, about this topic, is that pharma has an image problem. You know, they they have really allowed themselves to be cast as the bad guys in uh in the current state of, of prescription drug affordability. And th- this is really sort of the chickens coming home to roost and that. And so if they really want to solve this problem, they don't just need to deal with the Inflation Reduction Act, but they need to deal with the underlying problem that the public doesn't really understand what is involved in biomedical research, why it's so expensive and why it needs to be that expensive. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about sort of like, how do we have that conversation? And I should also note, you know, there's a lot of talk about health equity too. Um, the new chair of bio is uh, his black and he grew up in the rural South. Um, and he told a very personal kind of story about his experience and why he became a doctor. And, and he really talked about, in addition to some of the things I just mentioned, you know, he really talked about how we're not doing our job 
if our uh, we being the whole industry aren't doing our jobs, if our if the treatments and, and that we develop aren't available to everyone. Um, and, you know, and he had seen that firsthand. And and so and that's part of the same conversation, right? Like health equity has to be everyone's problem. Affordability and access have to be everyone's problem. Uh, and, and I think all that the Inflation Reduction Act has really changed is that, you know, we farmers just gotten this very loud notice that if they don't make it their problem, the government's going to make it their problem. Yeah, it's, it sounds a lot like the government's put in a really high ball offer to get another offer in from, from pharma to get that ball rolling. Yeah, uh, but the problem is, I mean, it's law now, so <laughs> it's not much of a warning shot, you know? It's not a warning shot if it sinks the ship, so that's... <laughs> that's you can't play chicken with legislation. Yeah, um, but it's really hard to tell, honestly. Uh, not that I would accuse pharma of, of being disingenuous, but pharma obviously has a, an angle here um, to act extremely aggrieved and to act like this is an existential threat. And I think to some degree, it certainly is. I mean, everything they're saying makes sense of everything I articulated before about um, how this law just doesn't line up with the way that uh, pharma companies fund research and, and fund innovation. But at the same time, you know, pharma companies aren't exactly hurting for profits. And, and I think people outside the space, you know, want to know if they're really, if they're really, you know, existentially wounded or if they're just trying to protect high margins and i think that's something that hasn't really been well addressed by pharma yeah we don't want to de-incentivize innovation in in medicine but we also want to make sure that any any medicine that is approved marketed is then able to be afforded by patients there has right. to, that we have to find that that medium between them we're just not quite there yet and the, uh, I mean, the, the one issue there is like, who are the middlemen? Where is all this money going between um, what the patient pays and what gets invested in R&D? And in fact, a lot of it is going to this sort of gargantuan edifice of payers and PBMs in the United States. And, and that's not really well addressed by this legislation. And that's, I think, uh, another sticking point of pharma is that like they've they've been they're being sort of laser targeted when they're only one part of the problem that leads to drug pricing issues. Well, it sounds like both of the, both events were jam-packed for you. I just want to round off our conversation with one question for you, which is for those who may not have been able to attend the events uh, this week, what are your key takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've left a lot out. There, there, I mean, there were many sessions about the Inflation Reduction Act, but there were many other sessions. Um, I haven't even talked about the session I moderated at bio, um, which was about funding. Um, the, the funding environment right now for small biotechs is pretty grim, especially early stage biotechs. And that's important because that's sort of the the widest part of the funnel of, of innovation in the industry. So there was a lot there were a lot of panels focused on that and including the one I moderated. Um and, and what are the options for small biotechs to sort of keep afloat? And how long is this environment going to last? Um, basically, the, the issue is that in, investors have to tighten their belts. And in the process of tightening their belts, they're, they're focusing on uh, sunk costs and lower risks. So companies they've already invested in, bringing them to a return. And uh, later stage investments that are less risky. And so the early stage investments get really 
you know, they, they benefit in a market where there's a lot of capital and people are making big bets for bigger returns. Like during a pandemic. Right now, there's not a lot of, right now, there's not a lot of appetite to make a big bet um, and, and not a lot of liquid capital to make a big bet. So that's a hard situation. Um, my panel was on creative funding options. We talked about accelerators and incubators and all kinds of things. It was with Bayer. Um, so, you know, there was something for everybody at Bio in terms of the the different stakeholders in the ecosystem, right? And there were also, um, you know, R&D focused panels. I think I, I avoided those more because I had just gotten a big dose of that at ASCO. But there were, you know, panels of a really detailing cell and gene therapy. There's a lot of interest in gene therapy. Um, we have a gene therapy interview from the show that's going to go out at some point. Um, the, you know, there's a narrative that I kind of spun out a little more after JPM of, of kind of we're still figuring out how we pay for these disease-modifying therapies and who pays for them. Um, didn't hear too much discussion of that at, at Bio, but I think it's definitely still in the air. Overall, if I were to sum up, ASCO was a great experience. You know, it, it was a really nice reminder of, like, what's at the heart of all this. Like, you know, it's a conference full of practicing oncologists. They see cancer patients every day. Um, and then they come to this conference. And so th there was nothing abstract about these presentations. They were talking about saving the lives of, you know, patients that they clearly could put faces to. Um, I think at some of the more industry business focused conferences, we start to have more layers of abstraction away from that. And that's reasonable and understandable. But um, ASCO kind of gave me a lot of hope because there's a lot of innovation happening. There's a lot of really dedicated, driven, uh, skilled people. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of um, camaraderie, even though, you know, pharma companies are all competing with each other, but they're also all working together to, you know, cure cancer and fight these diseases. And, and I think this, a conference like this is all about you know, there's an element of competition, right? Who gets the plenary sessions? But it's really all about like, oh, that's a great idea. Can we do that too? Or can we use that? Or can we combine this with that? I mean, pharma is a very collaborative industry. Look at what, look at what they did to get the uh, COVID vaccines out. Like, and, and I think part of that, and I, I talked to someone about this at one of the many interviews that I did, is that like when you're dealing with, uh, with medicine and life and death, like, it's not really ethical to not work together if working together saves and benefits patients. So you got to protect your, you know, proprietary information. Some of the silos are necessary, but I think they're really thinking about what silos are and what silos aren't and, and, you know, how, how you can always kind of keep the patient at the forefront. Um, bio was a, you know, a good conference to get a sense of, I think what is keeping the industry up at night, what they're worried about. And I think at this point, as the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act gets closer, um, really a sense of just like, and I may write a piece on this, um, you know, what's done is done. What do we do about it? Right. There's this big kind of existential threat to the pharma, pharma um, innovation. Um, you know, there's a lawsuit, but in the meantime, there's a lot of talk, I think, about like, how do we move forward? Where do we focus our efforts? You know, can we get a change on something limited like this kind of botched orphan drug exception? And that will help a lot of patients and help a lot of innovation. 
Um, so that kind of like that approach to sort of a pragmatic approach at this point. Um, you know, a lot of celebration too at Bio of sort of why we do this. Um, and that, and that was a good atmosphere too, I think. Um, you know, the funding environment is a little rough, but like, it wasn't like a, a funeral there, even amongst the small biotechs. They're excited about what they're doing. They're just hoping they'll be able to find a way to keep doing it. Um, I didn't talk much about uh, uh, tech stuff. <laughs> um, and and there was a lot of conversation about AI. I didn't find a lot of it to be super new or productive or interesting, if I'm being really honest, um, at least on the panels. I did ask a lot of my video interviews about AI, and all that's going to be in the deep dive, as you know. Um, Cancer X, which is part of the Biden Cancer Moonshot, uh, announced their cohort at ASCO. And, and what they've done is pretty impressive since they were initially announced at, um, at uh, another conference. And they've already got something like 91 uh, stakeholders and, like, from across the industry um, really working together t- towards the goal of figuring out how digital technology can improve um, cancer care and access to cancer care. So this is sort of the side of the cancer moonshot that isn't focused on developing new therapies, but is focused on like optimizing and maximizing the therapies we have and making sure they're available to all people at the sort of lowest cost with the least overhead. And how can we use telehealth and digital health and and better data to, to solve that. And that is all going to be in a big piece that I'm writing for our oncology deep dive. You, you beat me to plugging yeah, it. Yeah, look forward to that. I should just say that initiative is led by Jennifer Goldsack, who's been on this podcast a couple of times from Dime, um, and Santosh Mohan, who I think has never been on this podcast, but he should be. And he's currently at the Mo- at the Moffitt Cancer Center. And he and I have known each other for like a decade, um, we, we came up together um, covering, I was covering digital health and he was sort of innovating it on the provider level. And um, and he's one of my favorite people. The, the, the two of them are my uh, two of my favorite people. So I was very excited to hear that President Biden had put them in charge of this thing together. And, um, and I'm pretty bullish on it. That's really exciting. Thank you so much for joining me for, for the podcast recording today. Uh, as Jonah mentioned earlier, there will be more extensive coverage on the website. There'll be plenty to hear from both ASCO and BIO. And the other plug is that there'll be more to talk about with Cancer Moonshot and Cancer X in this upcoming deep dive, which will be published at the end of June. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks so much, Eloise. It was uh, good to sort of, I, I'm, this is, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, the, literally the last day of bio. So this is all very fresh for me. And uh, this is sort of my info dump, but I hope it was helpful for you. And I hope it was uh, interesting to the listeners. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>